So this morning we are finishing this series that we've been in over the last eight weeks called Curator, Repairing the Damaged Frames. And we are coming to the final topic, major topic of the life of Christ. Uh, actually, we could continue this series if we wanted to look at a lot of the minor details of the ministry of Jesus. But what we have looked at has been a lot of the major events. We have touched upon these familiar events and we have been to, trying to define what they mean for us here in the 21st century and what they meant to those that experienced them as they were involved in the life of Jesus. So let me review for you just one more time the topics that we have covered. We began with the temptation of Jesus, then we looked at the transfiguration of Jesus. We talked a little bit about his warnings to those that were listening to him. And then some of the parables, these uh, stories that made a point. We looked at the different ways of looking at Jesus' death upon the cross. We looked at his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And of course, Easter Sunday, we looked at the resurrection of Jesus. We looked at the appearances of Jesus last week. And today, we're going to take a look at the ascension of Jesus and if you want to keep your Bible open to Acts chapter 1, that's the only place we'll be this morning. And you can reference this story of this unusual event. Now, let me say this before we get into this last topic. People are not at church necessarily every Sunday, and sometimes it's hard in a series to kind of know what the connecting points are to the next message. So if you ever want to watch some of the uh, services or the sermons, we upload those to YouTube, usually on Sunday afternoon, and you can catch them there, and I encourage you to do that. In fact, we have quite a catalog now uh, between the kids' ministries, the sermon videos, and then the service videos. I was just looking this past week. We have over 300 videos that are uploaded there on YouTube. So um, if you happen to take a look on our website and you see some previous series that might interest you now, uh, you will be able to find those uh, on YouTube as well. We upload these messages to wherever you get podcasts as well. I'm, I don't know if you listen to podcasts, but I usually do in the car, listen to several different podcasts during the course of the week. And so we are wherever you can uh, find and download your podcasts as well. So uh, just wanted to make that public service announcement before we get into this last message. So this topic is quite unusual because I think in the minds of most people, we kind of see the ascension of Jesus into heaven as we read in Acts chapter 1 as sort of like Jesus is saying goodbye. And we see the disciples are all kind of gathered around. And I think what we tend to think this being is kind of like Jesus is getting on a cruise ship and all the family members are wishing him bon voyage, that type of thing. Remember, Incidentally, do you recall when we used to be allowed to go to the gate in the airport? 
That used to be a very tender time, wasn't it? So you would go with uh, your relative or friend all the way up to gate whatever number it is, and it was there that you said goodbye before they boarded the plane, and it might just have been them going on vacation, but more often than not, because we are so spread out in our country, a lot of times it was, well, I'm not sure when we're going to see you again, and sometimes there's tears that are shed as much as when a person walks off a plane and you see them grabbing somebody's neck because they haven't seen them in a long while. That's not what the ascension is all about. It's not about Jesus going on a cruise ship and we saying bon voyage. This is about Jesus' primacy over the entire cosmos. So let's tease this out a little bit. So there's a thing called the church calendar. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but in the course of every calendar year, there's a sub-calendar called the church calendar that often uh, begins with Advent, that four weeks that lead up to Christmas, and it goes all the way through uh, what we have just come through, uh, beginning with Ash Wednesday, Lent, and then it moves beyond Lent And it finishes up with several notable events in the life of Christ. The first being the ascension. The second being what is called Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is given. So there is such a thing called Ascension Day in the church calendar. And the Ascension Day usually is around 40 days after Easter, because what we find is that Jesus showed himself, as we talked about last week, for 40 days prior to his ascension into heaven. Well, this year, Ascension Day is Thursday, May the 26th. So that's technically 40 days after Easter. And either the church will celebrate Ascension Day the Sunday prior or the Sunday after. And then 10 days following that is Pentecost Sunday, where the church celebrates the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, where there are these specific type of days, there's often rituals that are attached to them as well. So it's interesting to me, the rituals that are attached to Ascension Day around the world are quite varied. Listen to this. In Germany, Ascension Day is also Father's Day. It's always the same day. In England, there was an old tradition that on Ascension Day, if it was warm weather, um, it would be a favorable sign, but if it was raining on Ascension Day, it was the prediction, sort of like the farmer's almanac, that it would be a poor harvest and livestock would suffer disease that year. Interesting rituals that are attached and has nothing to do with ascension, but these rituals are often attached. One more. In Sweden, people go into the woods very early in the morning on ascension day to hear the birds at sunrise. And it is said to be good luck if someone hears a cuckoo heard from either the east or the west. Now that sounds a lot like Groundhog's Day to me in the United States, right? A groundhog does not determine the weather. I hate to inform you on that, but it's a ritual. And people have rituals that they live by, and often these things get in the way 
of the true meaning of what this day represents. So no, Ascension Day is not like Groundhog's Day, nor is it Jesus being lifted up into outer space and is now somewhere hanging out in the clouds. Ascension Day has to do with the coronation of Jesus as king over the entire cosmos. So, you know, Star Trek says, going where no man has gone before. Well, in this idea of Jesus' ascendancy, it's not really about geography. It's about mystery. It's about what he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, when you think about that, The right hand of God is not some cosmological or geographical location. It's a poetical way of saying that God has all authority over his creation. And Jesus at the right hand of God represents the one who is administrating as God's king his rule over creation. You say, but this is told in a way that he is geographically going from earth to someplace else. Yes, it does. However, there's a lot of mystery here. And we don't know where this location is. Couldn't tell you. Have no idea. But what it does represent is very important. You know, what Jesus was locally on earth, he has become universally over the entire cosmos. There's an author named Richard Rohr that talks about the cosmic Christ. And that's the idea that he has behind this, is Jesus is Lord over all of creation. And I know this is not the way most people associate the ascension of Jesus, but it is the way we are to understand his elevation above all things. Now, what does that mean to us? Well, what it means is... If Jesus is Lord over his entire creation, we are not allowed, at least those of us who follow him, to run the world the way we think is fit. In other words, you know, (laughs) while the uh, cat's away, the mice will play, that type of thing. You know, we get to do whatever we want because Jesus is nowhere to be found. And I remember Charlie Bauer, some of you remember Charlie, used to say, Jesus is coming, and then he'd say, look busy. (laughs) Okay, in other words, you know, uh, Jesus is coming, you better have your act set straight. Okay, that's missing the entire point. The entire point is, who is God's appointed king? God's appointed king is Jesus, and therefore... We are to try to live out our life following his rule in our lives. Now, what is tricky about all this is religion a lot of times then takes that and thinks that they can superimpose that rule on everybody. And I think it is still best to make sure that we don't mingle religion and politics. That gets real messy right away, okay? But what it does mean is this, that the things that Jesus advocated for while he was on earth are the things that we advocate for in our lives as well. So in other words, the kings of the earth, they go about ruling the world the way they think they want to rule the world. But those of us who 
trust that Jesus had the best way for a flourishing life, not only for myself, but for other people as well, is to understand that his, his ascension is this proclamation that those of us who are to be his witnesses, that's what it says here in Acts chapter 1. Jesus is saying, okay, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit comes, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to all the rest of the world. What does that mean? A witness is somebody that's giving a testimony to something, and what we are giving testimony to is Jesus advocates for peace and mercy and justice. And when we see those things not happening in our world, we become an advocate to try to be of assistance for a more peaceful, merciful, and just world that we live in. Now, we all make decisions in terms of where we put our influence. We do that primarily through our families, friendships, church. But all of you have careers. All of you have social networks. All of you have social connections. So when we see injustice taking place, when we see people uh, not being merciful, when we see individuals uh, being hateful, we are the ones that are trying to give public witness to the fact that that's not the way of Jesus. Does that make sense to everybody? The way of Jesus is to advocate on behalf of other people, to come to their aid, to seek justice for them. Let me say this, and I don't mean this as a political statement, but I, I hope it hits you in, in a way that it gets the point. It is not the task of the church to make America great again. It's not the task of the church to make Russia the great power it once was. When the church gets into bed with politics, it always corrupts things. And I think it's important for us to understand that the ascension as it is defined for us here this morning is I am held responsible, you are held responsible before God for carrying out your life in a way that brings justice, mercy, and peace. And that's what he is commissioning his disciples to do as they go into the world, to be a different type of person in the world, to be a beneficial presence in the world to other people, to proclaim the good news that Jesus loves us, to proclaim the good news that someday God is coming back and he's going to set up his kingdom and we will live within it. But he is not a Messiah warrior. That's what they expected in the first century. And quite frankly, that's why Jesus was rejected, is because he did not come yielding a sword. He did not come with chariots. He did not come with an army. But rather, he came with a basin and a towel and washed people's feet and healed people and ministered to other people. Now, the disciples ask an interesting question in verse 6. And it kind of reveals their mindset. In verse 6 of Acts 1, it says, So when they met together, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's a loaded question. The question is, when will Israel be on top? Now remember, the nation of Israel had been suffering under the hands of foreign power for generations. You, from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome, they're still under oppression. And 
the disciples are saying, okay, I understand you didn't want us to take up a sword like Peter tried to do in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says, those who live by the sword will die by it. But when are you going to give the kingdom to Israel? Now, in other words, when can we have our life? When will we have our freedom? When will we be released from this type of oppression? You know, it's kind of the same question that sits within us over the last two years. When will we, are we going to get our life fully back? When will this difficult time that we're going through from this pandemic be over? That's kind of the mindset of the disciples here. When are you going to establish the kingdom? And notice Jesus' response in verse 7. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. I'm not going to tell you. It's not for you to know when. Now think about this for a moment. When you think about this waiting that we often go through, we get impatient. The disciples were impatient. An entire generation of Jewish people were impatient. Lord, is it at this time that you're going to establish the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know when. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus himself says, no one knows the time except the Father. In other words, what we find is that human beings would love to know the future. But Jesus says, it's not for you to know the future. And yet we are obsessed with that, especially within Christianity. I have known over the course of decades Christians who have tried to engage in wild speculation when Jesus is going to return. Trying to set dates. Trying to figure out when Jesus is coming again. Jesus has just said, it's not for you to know the times. So what he's saying is basically, don't go into crazy and wild speculation don't try to figure it out. And yet what people do, they'll take two books primarily, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, and they'll read it in such a way that they think they can figure out God's timetable. And you know what happens? It always ends in disappointment. Every time. Always ends in disappointment. Thousands and thousands of times, people say, I know when Jesus is coming. And they have the audacity to set a date. They've been doing that for 2,000 years. Maybe we are susceptible to that type of thing, susceptible to prediction, because all of us as human beings are like little kids on a long trip. The kids in the back of the car that say, what question? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And mom and dad will say, we're getting close, even though you're still three hours away, <laughs> you know, we're getting close. So let's think for a moment of what we tend to do sometimes. We are like the disciples that want to know when. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know. Why? Why won't Jesus give us that information? Why won't Jesus tell us that it's going to be year 2025? Well, there might be an answer to that. I don't think it's always best to know what the future holds. And let me put this down on the lower shelf so we can all get a picture of this. So let's imagine 
Um, so what, what grade are the boys in now? First and third, okay. So let's imagine for a moment that they're in math class, okay? And what if you, as parents, said to them, I know the future for you boys. You're going to get an A on this exam, math exam, all right? Now, what is that going to do to the kids? Do you think if you told them already that they're going to get an A on the exam, would they be motivated to do their homework and study, or would they be unmotivated to study and do their homework? It seems to me that we are a species at the earliest of ages to become very complacent, right? We tend to become complacent. So perhaps if I was to say to your boys, Jaden, Denji, I know you're going to get an A. And Brittany's going... Don't tell them that. You're pull, I'm pulling my hair out. They have a hard enough time doing their homework. Don't tell them that. But let's invert that for a moment. What if I told those boys, boys, there's a math exam that's coming up, and you're going to get an F? Well, they could be motivated to study and say, no, I'm not, and try to prove us wrong. Or they could feel defeated, right? Well, why should I study? I'm going to get an F anyways. So that is in the simplest of ways of saying, Jesus doesn't tell us the future, I think, either because of complacency or because of defeat. And I think what Jesus is saying, it's not for you to know about the future, but you do have a job in the present. You don't need to know the future, but you do need to have the power of the Holy Spirit. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what Jesus is saying to them is, do your job. Just do your job. Be my representative in the world. Take your world and just make it my world too. Jesus' answer, I think, changes their frame of reference. And I think they didn't have too big of a vision, they had too small of a vision. And that's why he specifically is saying, your vision was about your country only. Your only concern, are you going to restore the nation to whom? Israel, just, it's all about us. Jesus says, no, your vision is far too small. And so before he ascends into heaven, he is basically saying to his disciples that your, my vision is for you to be my people all the way to the ends of the earth. It extends to the end of the earth. Whether you know about that or whether you even care about that, that's my goal. Now, here's the deal. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. I've ascended, I am the king, just follow my lead. There's an old saying that some people watch history, some people write history, and some people make history. 
And I think what Jesus is telling his disciples, it's not for you to watch history or to write history or predict history, it's for you to make history. It's for you to be involved right where you're at, and I'll be with you. Yes, I'm ascended. I'm, I'm elevated. I'm exalted. However, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and my presence is going to be with you into the future. That's what he told them as well in John chapter 17, verse 18. Jesus says to God, as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. The future is not ours to know, but involvement is. So as we conclude, the best thing I can say about the ascension of Jesus is it's not a bon voyage. But these two angels do make a promise. In the vision of the angels is there is a time when Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. There's a time that is coming, but it's not for you to know the time. And I think that's about the best we can do. The ascension of Christ is to imagine the same Jesus known in the gospel narratives on a more cosmic scale, from localized to cosmic. So Jesus fed the hungry, Jesus touched the lepers, Jesus welcomed the children, Jesus enjoyed the company of the disapproved of society, he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God that it's near what was localized in his world becomes cosmic in scope. Jesus tells us here that we are to be about this. And there's always another level for us. Maybe it's not just his ascension, it's our ascension as well. The journalist uh, Elizabeth Gilbert says this, there's always another level up, there's always another ascension, more grace, more light, more generosity, more compassion, more to, sh uh, to show, and more to grow. One more, Ernest Hemingway had an interesting quote about ascension. He says, ascensions are like falling leaves, sad and happy all at the same time. Going away isn't really sad, especially when your going enables a new kind of presence to be born. So these are some thoughts that I have concerning the ascension. The ascension's an important part. It's to recognize the position of Jesus as the king. And so as we look at this, basically the points are the same that's in your liturgy if you follow them. And what you'll find is that I think this is kind of a bottom line understanding of this last topic that we have looked at today. So what we want to do is, as we close this service, is we want to take communion together. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you to come up and to receive the bread and the cup, and then hold that, and we will remember the words and life of Jesus together, okay? Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we close off this series, and this topic is an unusual one, often misunderstood one, but help us to see that we are the body of Christ, that your people are the arms and legs and feet of your work in the world. Help us to find our gifts. Help us to be motivated. Help us to continue to do your work around us, wherever that may be. Help us to be a shining light. 
And the only way that we really can do that is for us to gain the nourishment that we need, not only through the Holy Spirit, but through this time of communion that we have with you. So bless the bread and the cup. Thank you that the bread represents your body given for us, and the cup represents your blood of the new covenant established for a new way that ascends above the kingdoms of this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier, we were talking a little bit about how rituals are a part of our life, and Jesus established this ritual of what we call communion. Sometimes it's called the Eucharist. Sometimes it's called the Lord's table. But I do think that the meaning, no matter what title you give it, is related to this idea. This is the table of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. It's something tangible. It's a ritual. Sometimes churches will do communion on a weekly basis, and that's wonderful. We do it usually once a month because, like anything, rituals can become just routine, right? So think a little bit about this piece of bread and think about this cup. Think about Jesus giving his life locally, but he enables us to live beyond our local to uh, the cosmic or, you know, a bigger level. Uh, And think about this cup representing a new way to do life, a way of love, a way that establishes peace and justice as well. So Jesus took a piece of bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. So the cup represents the life that is in the blood. You have no blood, you have no life. It's the idea that the full life of Christ has been given to us. And when we say, drink this cup in remembrance of the Lord, what we are doing is we're remembering his life as it merges into ours and into others as well. Jesus also called this a new covenant, a new way of doing life. So we take the cup and we drink it in remembrance of the Lord. Let's drink together. Would you stand with me as I close our service together, please? So I want to close with a quote, and then I want to give you a benediction. So I've given you a couple of quotes at the end of the message. Here's one more. This is from John Chittiser. He says, Jesus raised our eyes above and beyond the narrow limits of our lives, showed us other horizons, and gives us a world beyond ourselves. You know, that really is what discipleship is all about. It's not all about me. It's about Jesus and other people. So as you go from this place, remember this. Our God reigns. He is robed with majesty and armed with strength. His kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. He holds our world and our lives securely. So do not be afraid, but go from here with confidence, knowing that the God who goes with you is greater and more powerful than anything else that you will face this week. Amen.
Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you next time.